Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Rory and Anne-Marie from the My Wall Street analyst teams. Today, we're talking about the recent troubles faced by Boeing, Netflix cracking down on passwords and Disney introducing ads, and we also talk about why Foot Locker could be the next Reddit-fueled stock. So guys, before we kick off today's episode, I just want to let listeners know that we now have an extended version of the Stock Club podcast that you can listen to exclusively within the My Wall Street app. The format of this normal Stock Club won't change, but now every week you'll be able to listen to an extended version of this episode exclusively within the My Wall Street app. It's completely free to do so. All you need to do is download the My Wall Street app and set up a free account. You can easily find all the past episodes of Stock Club there too, and you'll get notified as well as soon as new episodes are posted every Friday. For this week's extended episode, I'm going to pick what is my favorite favorite elevator pitch and we'll discuss that company in more detail in the extended version and figure out if it really is a good investment or not so make sure to jump on over to the my wall street app now if you want to listen into that in today's episode but Anne-Marie you're back from your holidays welcome back you're off in Rome but you missed uh, our conversation last week about Irish stereotypes so I think it's only fair to ask you what is the worst American stereotype you've ever faced <laughs> I imagine there's a long list mm, I think um, talking too loud in public spaces is probably a true stereotype, though, to be <laughs> fair, but it means that you're very easily <laughs> identifiable. So um, I, I think you're just like any time then when you go into public, you're always like, oh, I'm going to talk as quiet as possible so that they don't think I'm American so that it's not a topic of conversation. And it never works. Here's a curveball because you're you claim to be Irish. Mm. So what's the worst Irish American stereotype? Mm. Probably the like Irish Americans in the U.S. who are like five generations removed from their Irishness, and they think that that means that they can uh, say that they're like um, suppressed by society or something, or like, something like that they're discriminated against. I think that's pretty bad. I think here in Ireland we're too harsh on Irish Americans. Every time I've gone over to America, the amount of free drink I've got from people in bars when they find out I'm Irish, I love it. I say bring on more of it. Yeah, but we, we, so, I think Irishness is more of a state of mind, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> possibly possibly let's get into the news this week though so boeing of course is in the headlines again this week after a fatal crash involving one of the 737-800 jets in southern china appears to have claimed the lives of more than 130 people although the details behind what caused this particular crash are still being investigated the scrutiny will surely not be welcomed by the company that's still trying to recover its reputation from a scandal that emerged following two fatal crashes involving its 737 MAX airplane a few years ago in fact the company had only recently received approval to put its 737 MAX back into service in China after being grounded for more than three years and re- There's obviously a lot we don't know about this recent tragedy involving a Boeing plane, and we don't want to speculate on it, of course. But can you give us a quick overview on the troubles that Boeing have been facing before this incident over the past couple of years? 
Yeah, so Boeing actually had two fatal crashes in the last few years. One was uh, an Indonesian airline, Lion Air, and another was Ethiopian Airlines. Uh, Both of these crashes were later found to be the fault of a software that Boeing had installed on its new 737 MAX planes. Um, And that software actually did not, was not disclosed to airlines, pilots, or the FAA at the time of the plane's launch. This software is called the MCAS system, which stands for Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, which is seems vague but anyway um and the reason this happened was because the software was needed to make up for a design flaw so boeing rushed the development of the max in order to make up for um in order to make a competitor for the airbus a320 neo which was released in 2014 and at the time was the most fuel efficient passenger plane to ever come onto the market and it obviously got a lot of hype going within airlines who always want to try and save fuel So rather than designing a completely new plane, Boeing decided to take the old 737 design, which uh, at that point had already been used for more than 40 years, and just attach new larger engines to it. And the reason they did this was uh, several. Number one, the most obvious is they didn't want to spend money on a new plane design, but uh, also they wanted to prevent the new plane from getting caught up in FAA testing and pilot retraining. So apparently the most expensive part of launching any type of new plane is the manufacturers actually responsible for retraining the pilots um, if they make too many changes. It that, that cost does not fall upon the airlines. And so part of the incentive to sell these planes was that Boeing went to all the major airlines and said, hey, if you buy this plane, it'll be identical to the 737 your pilots are already flying. We're just going to give it a more fuel-efficient engine. And it meant that they sold thousands of planes in the run-up to the release of this. The issue was that because the engine was larger, it meant that they had to change where it sat on the wing. And this meant that if a pilot pulled up too suddenly when the plane was taking off, they could actually stall the plane. And so Boeing designed a software called MCAS, um, which it put in place to basically prevent this. So MCAS can override um, a pilot and tip the nose of the plane back down in in an attempt to level it off and prevent a stall. The issue occurred because the MCAS is reliant upon a single sensor on the outside of the plane, um, and that allows this uh, software basically to take continuous readings about where the plane is um, in terms of its takeoff. The issue is is that according to aviation experts that spoke about the issue on a documentary called Downfall, which is on Netflix, you can go and watch that, um, is that is basically unheard of. There, a plane should never have one sensor taking a reading. You want to have several because obviously you're flying a plane. It could get damaged. They could hit anything. Um, and then they can also obviously come faulty. So you want to have a couple of sensors to cover you. Um, Boeing didn't do this. They only installed one. And because the MCAS system malfunctioned in both of these accidents, and because the pilots had not been informed that the system was in place, it meant that they didn't know how to override the system. So the plane basically tipped itself all the way back down and and into the ground, unfortunately. Um, And in essence, Boeing cut a bunch of quarters to save money and to increase profitability, and that led to the loss of more than 300 lives. Yeah, and as you mentioned, that Netflix documentary downfall, you know, it became quite clear that... The culture in Boeing over the years, you know, Boeing's one of those, you know, it's it's up there, one of those iconic American companies. And the culture seems to have changed quite drastically coming out of the 80s and into the 90s. And this focus on, you know, profit, basically, and, and you know, competing with the likes of Airbus and stuff. I think it was Warren Buffett who once said that it takes 20 years to build a reputation, five minutes to ruin it. Considering the reputation that Boeing once had, you know, pretty much pioneering commercial air travel, uh, being involved in the Apollo program with NASA. Is it fair to say now that even discounting recent news that the co- company's reputation has been fundamentally undermined or even ruined? Yeah, and, and I actually took away from that documentary was that it was really sad because Boeing had spent its early years prior to a merger in 1997 with McDonnell Douglas, they had spent decades being very over the top about safety procedures. They were mm. considered the gold tier of airline 
airline manufacturing. And um, they went and spoke to all these past employees who commented about how they worked in this environment where they were encouraged to speak up. They were encouraged to bring issues to management. They want. They were told to take their time. They were told to ask for help. They were told to be diligent. And basically, after this merger, all of that went out the window. And it's really unfortunate to see a company that was so celebrated for this lose this ethos kind of overnight. And it really came down to an overemphasis on profitability and investor returns. Since the merger, it laid off a tremendous number of staff. It laid off a bunch of its quality engineers. And they noted a distinct drop in quality. They spoke to this one engineer, and he said it was routine to find tools built into Boeing planes because the engineers had to work so quickly. They couldn't remember where they put their tools, and they would just get built right in. They found a ladder in one plane. That had been left in there that that they just forgot. And something that really struck me was the decision to move the corporate headquarters to Chicago away from the manufacturing facility in Seattle. And the reason they did this was so that management and accountants and all the money crunchers could make all these unrealistic demands on engineers. And they actually didn't have to go and say it to them in person. They could just call them on the phone or send an email and say, oh, yeah, we want you to increase profitability. And they talked about how they would go to engineering meetings. And the first thing that would be said to them was how the stock price was doing. They weren't talking to them about quality or build or you know the ability to make a better airplane. Um, and I think that's that's really ridiculous, particularly if you're in an industry like building airplanes where public trust is probably the number one thing that you need. And so as of right now, it, it seems it might be pretty difficult for them to rewin the public's trust, particularly because it's only really coming to light now for regular people like you and me who are not aviation experts, how bad the deception was. Um, during that period. And it seems like the trust from pilots and airlines has been um, pretty, pretty depleted. I think their only kind of silver lining about this is there actually aren't that many plane manufacturers who can build at such a scale as Boeing and produce so many planes a year. And so it does mean that there is a demand there, but but hopefully that demand will help hold Boeing accountable. So what you're saying to us is the bad news is there's no quality control, but the good news is Boeing are still going to sell loads of planes because <laughs> there's no one else to do this. Basically, so the FAA, after the scandal, put in place all these new guidelines and basically demanded that Boeing needed to be more transparent. But they've been asking Boeing to be more transparent for like 10 years. And so it's just this perpetual issue of they have such a monopoly on the market. Unless yeah. Airbus starts producing thousands of more planes per year, they got we've got to get planes from somewhere. So hopefully Boeing revises its management. Otherwise, yeah, I don't really know. There's it's very it's a very funky situation. Yeah, well, I I think after recent incidents, the focus is going to be on them again. Rory, I want to come over to you. You know, as investors, one of our primary concerns is how good. Well, along many concerns, one of our primary concerns is how good and efficient a company can be at making money. When we look at what happened with Boeing, though, can you see a danger of focusing too much on this too? You know, what happens when a company starts focusing on returns for the the investors and stakeholders rather than the quality of their products? Well, can I just say, Amory, thank you for that. As someone who's never been afraid of flying before, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm now slightly terrified. I mean, on, on the question, James, you know, like you have to think about what we really do look for is companies that have a long-term vision. And when you start emphasizing returns over things like safety and reputation, you've switched from a long-term mindset into a short-term mindset. Um, yeah. And I remember, I mean, like, one of the great business stories of all time was when um, Johnson & Johnson, back in the 60s, I believe, someone was spiking their Tylenol bottles with poison. And there was a couple of deaths from people who had recently taken um, Tylenol. And the CEO at the time didn't hesitate for a second. He pulled all the Tylenol off all the shelves in the United States, even though... Uh, law enforcement, the FBI told him that wasn't necessary. He was like, no, every bottle comes off the shelf until we figure this out. And it cost them millions of dollars. 
but it was uh, but they came back with tamper proof tops and and uh hard pills rather than capsules which were harder for people to manipulate um and it did turn out that it was just some sociopath who was putting poison in the, in the Tylenol bottles and it took you know a couple of years for at the time Tylenol was the biggest selling drug in the United States um yeah. it took a couple of years for them to come back but it was that quick action that decisive action of sacrificing uh profits on the short term to maintain reputation over the long term that's now taught in business schools around the world is how you deal with a crisis situation um and Boeing, by the sense of things, have done done literally the entire the, the entire opposite thing, uh, and it it reminds me. I read a book a couple of years ago, which is a brilliant book. Anyone likes Michael Lewis, he wrote a book called The Fifth Risk, which was generally about kind of the 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 huge portfolio of risks that the U.S. government has to manage on a on a daily basis, and and what happens yeah. when when one part of that system breaks down. And when I first saw that Boeing 737 MAX thing uh, happening, which was after I'd read the book, I, I was literally like, this, this is the fifth risk happening in real time. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's Boeing, but it's also regulators that have dropped the ball here. And, and I, I mean, I, it's, it's sad to think that there's such a monopoly that there's probably going not to be a huge amount of downside from this. Yeah, absolutely. I think they definitely will be teaching this in, in business schools as future as what not to do in terms of uh, building a long-term sustainable business. Let's move on then. And so it's been a while since we spoke about streaming here in Stockholm, but there have been a few recent developments within the wider landscape that warrant some discussion. So first off was the announcement from Disney that it's set to start offering an ad-supported version of Disney Plus before the end of this year. This ad-supported version will be a cheaper option for those that wish to subscribe and according to the press release by the company, is a building block in the company's path to achieving its long-term target of as many as 260 million subscribers by the end of 2024. Netflix, on the other hand, seem to be going in the complete opposite direction. So in addition to raising their subscription fees again, the company is also moving to crack down on password sharing between users from different households. In a test that's been rolled out in some Latin American countries to start with, Netflix will now force extra account users that aren't within a household to pay a reduced price for access to that main subscription. Rory, let's come to the Netflix story first here. So this is a company that has been famously lax about password sharing in the past. It's even made jokes about it on its, its social media accounts. Does this new crackdown on password sharing reflect the fact that subscriber growth is slowing at Netflix? And, and should we maybe see it as a bit of a warning sign? Well, we've known subscriber growth was slowing at Netflix for a long time. You know, they, they have uh, hit a bit of a ceiling, particularly in their more developed markets. When I was kind of researching this this article, I, I, wrote, I read a piece by Lance Ulanoff, who's the US editor-in-chief of Tech Radar, and he started a piece by saying that he was watching a dating show where one of the questions being asked by their participants to kind of their potential suitors was, do you have your own Netflix account? Um, and it turned <laughs> out of all the men in, on the show, only one of them did. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, is, that like the, is that like the land frontage question here? <laughs> <laughs> um, and he ended up, so he ended up linking to a survey done by Muff Nathanson that was taken back in 2018. And that showed that about 14% of Netflix viewers in the US are using someone else's account that is outside their household. Okay, so that's people, you know, we're not talking about people who are living in the same house. We're talking about adults who are using passwords of like, you know, their parents or their partners or their ex-partners, which is a pretty funny one. Um, I think those freeloaders are going to be in for a big surprise over the next couple of months. Yeah. Um, <laughs> an awkward conversation. I can't, if I found out an ex-partner was using my Netflix password, I'd be furious. <laughs> um, 
just kind of slipping in there that I do actually have my own Netflix account, uh, if, anyone, <laughs> if anyone's interested. <laughs> but I'm going to read what Netflix actually wrote. They wrote a, a press release about this. And they said, we've always made it easy for people who live together to share their Netflix account with features like separate profiles and multiple streams and our standard and premium plans. While these have been hugely popular, they have also created some confusion about when and how Netflix can be shared. As a result, accounts are being shared between households, impacting our ability to invest in great new TV and films for our members. And you know what? I agree with them. I completely agree with them on this. Really laying the guilt trip like, on it. Sorry, like if you, you know, as someone who works for a subscription business, I think people should pay for services that they find value in. You know, if you are finding value in a product, you should contribute to the creation of that product. And you know, if you're not, it's the people who are paying that are basically subsidizing you. And, you know, and Netflix aren't even stopping this from happening. You know, they're they're just adding like a three dollar surcharge on. It's not like they're asking people to create like another account. And as you said, like in the past, Netflix has been very lax on this kind of thing, as have other companies, uh, it must be said. But I think a lot of companies are going to follow them down this road. You know, for a long time, Netflix kind of really had this, this space to itself. And it could afford to be kind of generous in terms of things like password sharing. But now they're up against huge competitors. They have competitors with very big pockets, the likes of Disney and Amazon. And, you know, for a long time as the biggest players in the space, Netflix had a real advantage because whatever they ended up spending on content is going to be less per subscriber than anyone else. And that's a really big advantage when you're taking on other dedicated streaming services who have to play by the kind of same rules that you do in terms of generating profits. It's not necessarily an advantage when you're taking companies who are providing streaming as part of a larger package. So, you know, that's that's kind of where we, we get to with the, the Disney and the Amazons of the world. Yeah, well, that leads on nicely to the next question. So, you know, Disney is obviously a company that has much broader business interests than Netflix, which is just focused on streaming, obviously. So with this new kind of ad supported feature or subscription, I suppose, that's coming in with Disney Plus, is this is this be coming in with Disney Plus because they just have the more bandwidth to experiment with these different types of models? Well, so, I mean, first of all, funnily enough, an analyst at Cohen did a little number crunching on the Netflix thing. And they reckon mm. it could potentially add $1.4 billion of revenue in 2023. Wow. Um, that's 4% of what was already expected. So an extra 4%. And when you get into the billions of dollars, you know, you're starting to talk about real money. You know, so this is some pocket change. <laughs> um, and like, you know, when you talk about D- Disney is playing very much a kind of subscriber ad game at the moment and, and and i can understand why they're going down this this route of creating a kind of ad supported thing but going back again to the the survey i mentioned previously and um, the moffat nathanson one they actually went and they asked people they surveyed everyone about what they liked most about netflix and the number one reason given was that they didn't like ads it, that was above everything else it was you know it was above choosing what they got to watch it was above the quality of the shows. It was above the ability to binge watch. All these things that we kind of associate with, with what's great about Netflix. The number one thing was people didn't want to see ads. And there was, I suppose, this kind of, um, it was kind of a mad test, wasn't it? You know, for so long, we've had this system in place where you get something for free or you get something for very cheap and, you, and you're, subs, you're kind of, that's subsidized by you being battered constantly with ads and as someone who lives in ireland and occasionally streams american television i do not know how to put up with it it's it's overbearing <laughs> to the extreme 
Um, but even now when I'm watching Irish TV, I'm like, God, I hate seeing the ads. You know, I'm so willing to pay up to not have to deal with that. And the most the most annoying thing is when they raise the volume for the ads. So you'd have your TV on whatever volume, and they they make it louder for the ads. And funny enough, I I have I have friends who have children who are kind of you know three or four that kind of age, and they've been brought up on Netflix. So whenever they're sitting in front of the TV and an ad comes on, they actually start bawling, crying because they they hate they hate their show <laughs> being interrupted like that because they're just not used to it. And anyway, this is one of the the, the reasons why Reed Hastings said years ago now that they were never going to put ads on Netflix. Um, I'm sure he kind of saw the same data that Moff Nathanson was, was finding. Now, I don't know if that's actually ever going to be the case forever. I remember I was speaking to uh, one of our long-term users who was from India, and I asked him about Netflix ex- Netflix's expansion into India, and he said, well, if it's the same prices in the US, that's about as much as the average family spends on food for a month. So, you know, there's, they obviously had to kind of approach different markets different ways. And I think in certain markets, particularly places like India and, and China, users are a lot more happy to, to deal with ads and pay less money. You know, there's a little bit, I don't know if that the, the pay up for no ads mm. culture has kind of penetrated those places just yet. But I do wonder now whether Netflix will, in certain markets, start kind of testing whether that would be a potential booster for them because it, like like I said they are going to have to greatly reduce prices in certain markets in order to keep that growth going and this kind of move now as well with the with the change of passports I was kind of going around a couple of message forums trying to get a sense of what people were how people were reacting to the this change and, and, and price increases in, in Ireland and the UK recently and what I found was and there's an awful lot of people who are paying the price for Netflix in Turkey and watching it in Ireland, which is about two quid. Um, so, you know, <laughs> so Netflix has an awful lot of potential revenue grab out there that I don't think it's, it's, it's quite um, got its grips on. And I think that's going to, they're going to kind of continue this crackdown. I don't think they're going to let this that's... go on. Because as we said, you know, if you were to take someone like Disney and Amazon out of the picture, Netflix is in is by far in the in the driver's seat when it comes to streaming. But when you look at something like uh, Disney, for example, Disney doesn't need to make money off streaming. You know, I think they want to and they and they will, but it's not a key concern for them. A key concern is is to keep people within the Disney universe to make sure that there's a, a constant generation growing up with Disney being the main thing that they're interested in. You know, as much as we as much as this sounds terrible, Disney owns childhood. That's just the way it is. And and they <laughs> want to maintain that grip on childhood, which means pumping Disney into every household in the world so that they will buy the merchandise and they will go on the cruises and they will go to the theme parks and they'll go to the cinema. That's the whole model. So um so yeah, I'm not surprised at all that they are willing to sacrifice a little bit of revenue and, and throw an ad supported version out there. Whereas Netflix is very much, you know, committed to the idea that no, what people like is no ads and we're going to maintain that focus. Anne-Marie, you recently wrote the Stock of the Month report on Roku or, or back in January anyway. And a lot of that was based on Roku's own kind of foray into ad supported streaming. Do you think this makes sense for a, a streaming site like Disney Plus? I think Rory is correct in saying that this is kind of a move to acquire uh, initial subscribers and then I wouldn't be surprised to then see them ups- upsold further down the line. I think the key difference is that Roku's big advantage, like the way it can beat um, the Amazon Fire Stick, for example, or, or the Google Chrome plugin, um, it, is that 
they have diversity in terms of the channels and partners that they have. So it's something like in Germany, they have 2000 content providers. And that means that like they have channels that are super niche. You know, you're going to have an anime channel that will just be, you know, bringing in productions from Japan. And that's all that that channel will specialize in. And that channel will be ad supported Mm -hmm. because most people probably don't consume enough anime that they're like, oh, this is worthwhile me paying $10 a month. And so I think it does make sense for niche players to bring in ad supported streaming because it is unlikely that a person you know will spend enough time on a niche player where it justifies paying for that content and not seeing ads but when it comes to a very large player like netflix i think i think rory's correct as they continue to build out this massive content library more and more people are going to say right if i'm spending the majority of my time on netflix i can pay more money for that and not have ads but maybe if I, you know i'm only going to use a service once a month do you know what i'll sit through the ads so i can watch this one movie um so really like both First off, Disney Plus adding ads is absolutely great for Roku because think of the amount of time people spend watching Disney Plus. But I think that we can have a universe where both things are true. We can have a universe where people are paying for really high quality content that doesn't have ads. And we can have a world where people are, you know, watching ads to subsidize their content viewing. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I need to end this story with confirming that I do indeed own my own Netflix account too. <laughs> and Marie, should I ask? I, I do Shame. <laughs> Shame. You are the problem. <laughs> no, don't have it. Yeah. So let's move on. Uh, and don't forget that if you're listening to this podcast in the My Wall Street app, you will now get some extra My Wall Street member only content at the end. This week, we're going to pick one of the elevator pitches and discuss it in more depth. You can only listen to this if you listen to Stock Club in the My Wall Street app, but it's free to do so. Just go over to mywallstreet.com or download our app from either the app or play stores and sign up for a free account. Speaking of the My Wall Street app, let's take a look at one of the more recent insights that we've published in the My Wall Street app too. So today we're going to chat about the insight that you actually just published today, Anne-Marie, about Foot Locker. So I'm fascinated by this because when I think about investing, or at least when I think about good investment opportunities, Foot Locker does not come uh, front of mind. It seems like a kind of very old world, 90s, early 2000s kind of company. What prompted you to dig into this dinosaur of the brick and mortar uh, in this past week? Really? Well, what initially caught my attention is that it was kind of trending across, you know, Reddit and Twitter and, and, and various investment universes, I guess we can call them. And I just kind of wanted to see what was going on. So that was like the initial reason. But it actually did kind of develop into this more interesting thought experiment, I guess we can call it, where basically Foot Locker is, is a company in decline. Mm. I, I don't know will Foot Locker be around in 20 years. It's it's a brick and mortar retailer specializing in athletic shoes. The vast majority of its locations are in American malls which it's not great. And then it's overly dependent upon a single brand, which is Nike. In 2020, Nike products made up 75% of Foot Locker sales. Wow. And that is not great, particularly when Nike wants to keep more and more of its stock for itself because it's doing this big direct-to-consumer push, which it has done quite successfully. So like, there's kind of these broad trends that are not moving in Foot Locker's favor. And it seems like everybody knows that. Like there seems to be a big market consensus of Foot Locker is dying. So get your money out of Foot Locker. And that has actually created a pretty interesting cigar butt scenario as um, Warren Buffett would like to say and basically back in the 60s he used to have the style of investing where he would go and look for companies that were in perpetual decline but because everyone knew it it meant that the stock would sink tremendously kind of off of this initial shock and then for a couple years it would kind of build back as people kind of got over the shock and were kind of like okay this business isn't closing down tomorrow but it will eventually close down and therefore you go and you find the cigar butt and you get a couple puffs for free and then you throw <laughs> the butt away. that's basically what it comes from <laughs> yeah but exactly <laughs> but that's actually how he ended up with the name berkshire hathaway he bought a company that was in perpetual decline which was berkshire hathaway which made textiles 
And he kind of had it for two years and he made a little profit. And he was like, this is great. Let's get rid of this company. And then the guy he tried to sell the company back to tried to discount the price by 12 cents. And Warren Buffett got so annoyed that he bought out the rest of the stock and then fired the guy. (laughs) And then he got stuck with this absolute stinker of a company. And he has since said that buying out Berkshire Hathaway was the worst investment decision that he ever made in his life. This, so is, this is not a good uh, episode for Warren Buffett. <laughs> no. So that that's kind of the thesis is that maybe Foot Locker is this cigar butt stock, right? Like we had this initial shock of, oh my God, Nike is about to pull all of its merchandise out of your store. You're going to go bankrupt. And the actuality of the financials for Foot Locker. So the, the stock is down tremendously. It's down like 50% for the year, but it has a PDE of 3.5, which is well under its competitors it has a market cap of three billion dollars and it made eight billion dollars in revenue this year wow. it has really strong gross margins of around 33 percent and it's a big five percent annual dividend and because the price is so low right now everyone is saying the company's going to do a massive stock buyback because it has a tremendous amount of cash on hand and very little debt so it's kind of this thing of hey we might have a short-term opportunity here and is this being picked up by like the reddit crowds and stuff kind of like what happened last year with likes of amc we're seeing some kind of minor traffic on Reddit, but I do think it's very important to say that Foot Locker will not short squeeze. So okay. GameStop had a kind of similar thing where everyone was saying, oh my God, GameStop is going to be bankrupt tomorrow. But we all know it'll take several years for GameStop to go out of business. The issue with GameStop was at one point they had a short interest of like 85%. Foot Locker has a short interest of 8%. So it's, okay. it's not going to short squeeze. You're not going to see this like huge multiple. It's not going to be up by 25X. But we might see this kind of short term where maybe you get a little bit of profit out of it that being said like this is not the type of investing i'm interested in it's not the type of investing that we're interested in but I, it was just an interesting little thought experiment we'll see how it goes yeah there can only be 21 million foot lockers few people understand this <laughs> i don't understand this <laughs> it's a reference to bitcoin james <laughs> oh sorry 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 uh yeah that went right over my head <laughs> Thanks for that, Anne-Marie, though. Uh, so, remember you can, so remember, you can check out that insight in my Wall Street now. So let's move on to the elevator pitch. The elevator pitch we're going with today, guys, just pitch me a company that's on your watch list at the moment. Uh, I'm going to pick my favorite at the end, and we're going to discuss it in a little bit more detail. So, Rory, you want to go first? What company are you looking at at the moment? Yeah, I'm looking at a company um, called Toast, which is a payments and SaaS solution kind of designed specifically for the restaurant industry company's about 10 years old it's kind of one of the real success stories that's come out of the burgeoning boston tech scene they went public in september last year like a lot of 2021's ipos they have had a baptism of fire on the public markets the stock is currently down 70 percent from its all-time highs not to be too reductive but i think calling toast a square designed specifically for restaurants is not too far off the mark they kind of started out in kind of point to sale solutions and have kind of now made money from kind of hardware and then payment processing um, they've since expanded into kind of ancillary services like digital ordering and delivery, payroll, inventory management, gift and loyalty cards, marketing solutions, even analytics. Um, so they're very much following kind of the square model, obviously, without the kind of cash app like consumer product behind them. Revenue is growing triple digits. Annual recurring revenue is up 74% last quarter. There's $57 billion processed through their system last year. That too was up triple digits. And they currently have 57,000 locations. Um, however, it's like a lot of those stocks have fallen out of favor with investors. Uh, recently, there is some profitability concerns. Ah, who are who, who cares about profit, Rory? <laughs> Thanks for Not that, Anne-Marie. What? <laughs> <laughs> Anne-Marie, what stock are you pitching me? My stock also has profitability concerns, but it is 
far less likely to have explosive revenue growth. So the company that I decided to look at is a company called Vita Coco. They are a coconut water company. Their sticker is Coco, C-O-C-O. And basically the reason that this came across my radar was, again, I saw it trending. So we at my Wall Street have the Insider Bot, which is at the Insider Bot on Twitter. And recently it was flagged on the Insider Bot that the CEO of Vita Coco bought more than 100,000 shares of the company. And that's kind of an interesting thing. Like, why is the CEO buying more shares in this company? He must feel pretty good about it. And that increased his ownership stake by 6%. So I was like, okay, it's a, it's a, it's a coconut water company. What could be going on here? So I went and had a look. They've actually had a pretty good few years. They only just IPO'd in 2021. And between 2020 and 2021, their sales grew by 22.2%. They're expecting 20% sales growth for next year. Not too bad. They have net income, but it did decline in 2021 despite growing revenue because there's an increased cost of goods. Obviously, the cost of coconuts must just be going up. <laughs> That's our main concern during inflation, everyone, the cost of coconuts. Price to earnings is 25. It's a bit high. They have some growth in there. It's lower than like a big drinks company like Monster, but they're not Monster. They sell coconut water. So it's a really small cap company, $500 million. I don't know. I want to dig in more. I want to find out what type of moat can you have in coconut water? How good is coconut water? Is this just a five-year kind of play? I don't know. It's just a funny one. I can answer those questions for you. It's crap. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Like, I don't really drink coconut water, but obviously someone's drinking it. Probably, like, people in Los Angeles. Emmett went through a big phase of drinking coconut water at one point. Do you remember that, James? Yeah, I do. He kind of actively admitted he didn't like it as well. He just kept drinking it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be a fan of coconut water. But uh, as much as I, I really want to hear more about uh, Vita Coco, I think I'm going to have to pick toast purely because of the rough year that IPOs have had in the past year. And I kind of want to dig more into that company. So guys, if you're listening to the free version of Stock Club, this is where we'll leave you today. If you want to find out more about toast, however, make sure to jump onto my Wall Street app and you can listen to the rest of our conversation on this exciting company. Otherwise, remember that if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or future elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us as always on Twitter, that's at my Wall Street HQ, on TikTok, that's at my Wall Street, or simply just email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. That's P-O-D at mywallstreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.